Jay Williams, a graduating senior of Oklahoma City University. And the reason I read that quote is because I stumbled upon a story. Uh, the school had actually a virtual graduation last Saturday. Uh, it was a day after you and your family, Julie, and I and, you know, perhaps tens of thousands of others around the country ran in support of Ahmad Arbery. Uh, but on last Saturday, uh, the school had a virtual graduation and we've heard of the zoom bombing and unfortunately uh they had to to deal with a zoom bombing case racist um you know epithets and some of the other stuff came across the screen and so uh, i just simply want to just remind people you know look these people that are doing these things they're your friends or they're your friends of friends of friends uh and and i'm not you know throwing a negative piece of shade on any of our listeners directly at least not that I know of. My encouragement is that each and every one of us, we are ferreting out stories like this. We are reaching out to individuals in our network and we are making sure that we do not make space for people that are causing others harm through their aggr aggression and or through their action and their words. So to you, I say, Jay, what's popping? How are you? Yeah, good. I mean, I think just, you know, on that note, I think it's also okay to say, that a lot of us are having tough conversations right now and we are making tough decisions. I had some very uncomfortable conversations this week with some members of my family and, you know, just kind of committed to, Hey, you know, this is going to be a family discussion. We have to take, we have to take control of some of the things that have been rooted in our family. And as scary as that was, I, I realized how much, my silence in in my family life has really impacted me um but it's also impacted by not calling things out on their face when they needed to be called out it's allowed them to fester and take a much stronger route and now the the work of removing that route is is going to be a lot more challenging so you know, lots of lessons learned over the past couple of weeks, lots of, of tough conversations that aren't going to go away, but also a, a big, a freedom in that. I feel like I've, I've slept differently. I've felt differently in the last few days because I changed my expectation for myself and for, for my family about how we're going to manage these kind of things. Um, you know, with, with our extended family. And so while it's not always going to be easy, it is necessary. And, you know, I thank you for, for continuing to support us as we go through this journey too, with you and, and beside you. And, and, you know, other than that, it, it's a lot of quarantine, um, a lot of anxiety kind of around, 
you know, as people start to go back to work, it's, it almost makes me a little bit more anxious because I'm more worried about people getting sick than when we were all locked down. So I think everybody's kind of experiencing that in a, in a different way too. Um, but, you know, I got a, I got a lot of, of really positive affirmation after our run about the, the necessity of love versus hate and, and, and some of my favorite kind of, you know, reminders that I needed just coming back. And so I think this Jay Williams quote just starts us off perfectly for quarantine week nine and, and where I think, you know, we're going to be for at least the, the foreseeable future. Yeah. Well, when you talk about going back to work, you know, I think about a podcast that I listened to last week from Sarah Morgan. You can find her on Twitter at the buzz on HR. Again, the buzz on HR. Uh, she put up a season uh, to episode 23. I think she's going to do like seven part series around returning to work. Uh, so for those of you who out there are um, considering going back to the office, needing some things to consider from an HR perspective uh, as it relates to going back to the office and allaying some of that concern that Julie mentions, uh, you may want to have a listen to uh, to her, her podcast. And, and if you ping me on you know, email, Twitter, something. Uh, I have a couple of other resources that I can email directly to you, uh, resources that I'm collating from various friends of mine. So, Jay, let's get this thing going. Uh, I'm going to stretch a bit in this episode a little later. I plan on switching up a portion of my social media diet. I'll talk about that a little bit later, but I'd love for you okay. to kick us off. I normally am the one kicking us off, and I think it's only apropos that you rock and roll with us this week. Sounds good. Uh, so just kind of in that same vein of of what's going to happen when we go back to work, we really had um, a, a tale of two companies uh, in the last week or so and a, and a tale of two different types of labor. And so I'm not sure if you heard, Torin, but last week, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey said to his employees, they could work from home forever. Forever. And forever. Right. Like there's there's no going back to the office. And um, specifically, I want to uh, pull out a quote, but they said we were uniquely positioned to respond quickly and allow folks to work from home, given our emphasis on decentralization and supporting a distributed workforce capable of working from anywhere. The past few months have proven we can make that work. So if our employees are in a role in a situation that enables opening offices, um, will be our decision when and if employees come back will be theirs. Uh, and, and you that's know, a pretty powerful. It is. And let me jump in. You know, when you talk about a tale of two workplaces um, and, and what I hear in that statement is not only were they able to adjust quickly uh, and mm -hmm. without a great deal of uh, let's use the word discomfort um, without a great deal of lag and productivity or, or in one being able to get up and running. I guess what I'm getting at is I would think that the majority of those individuals, Julie, are probably um, financially secure enough, technically secure enough, that really it was a matter of walking out of the office on any given day, hopping in yep. their mode of transportation, going home, they are perfect. They have Wi-Fi, they have broadband, they have the laptop, they have, you know, external storage. They had everything that they needed, literally. I, yeah. I mean, it's it's a totally different world. So you're absolutely right. It really is uh, a tale of two cities, so to speak. 
Yeah, so you have exactly skilled labor, office-based labor in, in terms of I sit in front of my computer most of the day, um, younger, tech-savvy, ready to roll in these kind of situations. And then you have kind of the, and, and before I even switch to the other city, I, I think that it's also, you know, they even took it a step further at Twitter and said, there's not going to be any business travel till September. No um, in-person kind of company conferences or functions for the rest of the year. And so they've been able to be in this place where they can be because of the nature of their work and the nature of the labor that they hire, that they can be incredibly intentional and incredibly cautious yeah. in the way that they they take their approach to reopening. And I, I think that that's something that I know I have taken for granted um, quite a bit. I always work from home. And, and so I already have kind of that luxury. And I think that in my own way, it's, it's been a little bit of a bubble for me um, to think about like, hey, I, I don't want to go back out and I don't have to go back out. Mm -hmm. And then you have the other, the other side of the coin and you have Tesla's CEO, uh, Elon Musk, who last week forced the hand of, of both his employees and, and local leaders in his California or in the Northern California Tesla production factory. Now how to in the world, how in the world did he do that? Like, how is he uh, wielding enough power that he can force the hand of local politicians? Yeah. Well, one, he is extremely litigious. So he's already sued the counties and the governments that have deemed Tesla production non-essential. He also has a very loud voice and he's been really kind of fashioning self into this um, anti-public health movement. Uh, I'm going to call him an anti-hero because he's not a hero and, you know, creating sort of this place around it where he got a lot of attention. But I think what is even more important and really what ended up forcing the hands of the politicians or the local bureaucracy is that he also forced the hand of his employees, right? He said, if you're not back at work this week, we're going to put you on place leave or on, un we're going to place you on unpaid leave. That's fine if you choose not to return. But if I do this, your, your uninsurance or unemployment insurance eligibility is gone. And like a lot of other states, California is having a really hard time keeping up with the demand of processing those unemployment requests. And only one in eight Californians who've applied for unemployment have actually even gotten their first checks. And so there's no money in, then they're going to cut the money off and you got to show your ass back up to work. Yeah. Safety be damned. Somebody needs a Tesla. Yeah. So, so, you know, and I'm, I'm curious, you know, for our listeners out there, um, I, I got to think that there's certainly a few that are driving a Tesla and I don't begrudge anyone driving a Tesla. My question, and I'd love for you to listen and shoot us a tweet. If you are on the waiting list for a Tesla vehicle, I'd love to hear from you as to whether or not you're receiving that vehicle is essential. Is it of the utmost importance? Can it wait until, let's just say you get 
a holiday present, like it arrives in Q4 and not uh, in August or September when it was originally supposed to be there. I really want to hear from someone that is a listener that is on the list waiting for a Tesla, Jay. Yeah, I, I would like to as well. And, you know, and here's the thing. This is this is my struggle between and I think a lot of Americans are feeling the same way. And I think a lot of employers and DNI leaders are feeling this way is. How do we help people return to work safely and also with dignity? I think that, you know, we've talked about this a, a lot, is that there is this propensity for people in professional positions like ourselves um, to to look down the, our noses at what the people that are now saving our lives, that are keeping food on the shelves, that are keeping hospitals running, that are keeping the, the essential manufacturing moving. And coming from a, a blue collar background, I know that those workers who are being forced back to work because not only can their work, their work is not kind of that skilled can be done in front of a computer, but because they are kind of that general labor working class that they feel slighted, that they feel angry, that they have to go back and put themselves and their families at risk while I get to sit at home, keep my family safe and have someone deliver my groceries. And that, you know, and, and that's bullshit. I, and I have myself been guilty of it. We should not be treating people that way. And, and I hope that this helps us recognize, but I think what an Elon Musk does and not being able to, to kind of process unemployment insurance, it's sort of that perfect storm of exacerbating the same divisions that are so sharply dividing the country right now. And as employers, I think primarily it is going to be our job our duty to figure out how to level that playing field and stop looking down as, as organizations at how, in, how we look at those uh, lower wage earners and how we treat them as an organization, because this is only going to get worse if we, if we don't recognize how impactful it is to the person that it's happening to while we all kind of just, you know, chill at home. No, I absolutely agree. And, and you know, Julie, I'm one that feels like we do need to get back to, uh, I'd love to get back to some level of routine. I'd love yes. to, to experience the hustle and bustle and to listen to, uh, you know, the sound of traffic and voices of others and, you know, get in airports. If nothing else, I'd love to get uh, on a plane so that I can uh, escape um uh, well, all right, we won't say that. <laughs> Let's just say yes. every once in a while I enjoy getting uh having a uh a business trip. Let's just say that I enjoy that, yes. you know, because it's a change of everything. And and you know, when the king comes back, then he's missed and you know, mm -hmm. all that other great stuff. So uh, <laughs> you know, hopefully nobody's listening that uh, uh yeah, I got it. So <laughs> but I think it's amazing that, you know, I think it's amazing when we are we're not willing to uh to use committee. Uh and, and I don't know what, you know, Elon and his team did, if he even included his team, I'm sure the legal team was involved in it. 
you know, but I don't know what his committee looked like in terms of input and, you know, thought from other and the pros and cons, pluses and minuses. Uh, I just think that we, we, we can get back to some level of routine, normal, but I just don't know if there's a, a wide sweeping uh, look at that and, and to, to put those ramifications on people of, you know, look, you, you, you don't have to come back, but we ain't paying for shit. We knocking you off of stuff and all these other things. I just think it's a little too soon for us to be um, short-sighted as a leader. I just don't think that that's a good leadership move. We, you saw the, the message of speaking of vehicles and movement. Um, you know, there were leaders from uh, within Uber who offered to take a cut in pay. Um, and they knew that taking a cut in pay wouldn't save them from layoffs altogether, but they felt like maybe instead of laying off 25% of our engineering team, maybe we can get it down to 20% or some other number. And the CEO was like, no, ain't no need for you all to take a cut in pay. We just going to lay the folks off. It's going to put us in a better position and it might put you in a better position, but at what cost? Uh, and yeah. so I just think that I, I think it's a little too short sighted for our leaders, you know, small, medium, large, high profile, no profile. I just think it's a little too soon for them to be short sighted and borderline insensitive with some of the declarations and positions that they are taking. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, we're as long as we allow people like Elon Musk to have such unlimited power. And it's not really because his hand can't be forced. It's because capitalism is not, it, we don't have the the fetters and the regulations in place right now to keep him from acting. And consumers and shareholders are not enforcing our views upon him either, right? If his stock price, which is trading at $785 a share when they're not even profitable, right? So that he's he's grabbed that control because people have so much invested in him as a company that he can wield that power to put those that make the Teslas in danger every single day. And as long as that kind of power structure continues to exist in this country, the working class and the divide between the rich and the poor is just going to continue to grow. And there will come a day of reckoning for that. And it, it may not be right now, um, but we can't continue to, to treat each other in this way. And we can't continue to just build and build and build when times are fat. And then as soon as, as times get skinny, we realize we haven't built an efficient business. And the, the best way to take care of that is to chop heads at the bottom, which is exactly what Uber did. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's something that we're going to be watching out in California. That's over in Fremont, right? Um, I believe so. Yeah, I think it's over in Fremont, California. I, I'm I'm interested to see over the coming weeks, you know, what happens, you know, very similar to what's going on with meatpacking plants and, you know, other places where it's going to be very, very hard for you to practice uh, some of the recommendations that have been given to us around social distancing and washing hands and other, you know, precautions. It's going to be interesting to see how these organizations embrace, uh, you know, what's required, what's recommended. Uh, and then more importantly, what's the impact on their employee base? I'm really, really going to be watching stories like this Tesla one and so many others 
to see what happens and to see how it contributes to, uh, you know, the, 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 the virus still being replicated over and over and over again. So thanks for bringing that one to the radar today. I appreciate that. Yeah, no, thank you. And I, I'm really interested in your your focus today, too. So you want to kick us off there on number two? Absolutely. Investigative journalism. We're going to a different place, you all. So we we really have, you know, over the last eight weeks or so, we've talked a lot about COVID-19. You know, when you turn on the news, whether it be television, podcast, uh, blog posts, uh, you know, it, it's just all over the place. I mean, we can't we can't get away from it. And I don't think that we should get away from it. I just tried my best, uh, and Julie has as well. We've tried to not so much so focus on only COVID-19, but in this instance, I want to talk about it from a different angle. And and so when we talk about investigative journalism, I found a story over on Pointer. Uh, And Pointer is an organization that was, I believe, founded back in like 1972. Fun fact, the phrase groupthink, that was actually coined in 1972. But I think Pointer was uh, formed in Florida down in uh, 1972. And really, you know, what this article is talking about is how are we telling the stories from COVID-19? Sure, it highlights some individuals in the link. You'll see it when you click it. Highlights some uh, individuals that have been uh, recently promoted to leadership positions, positions of authority, positions where they have a bit of power inside of their newsroom or they have the resources to support them to go out and do real investigative journalism. That's not cheap. It takes time. It takes resources. Uh, it takes a, a lot of touching of of touch points. And so it's not something that uh, is an easy feat, if you will. And there's not a lot of black and brown people that are in this space, certainly not in this space with any level of of let's just say authority, not enough of them. And so I thought this story was interesting. One, because of course it talks about COVID-19 and and why, why the stories around the impact on certain communities were not captured in the very beginning. If you recall, Julie, when we started to talk about COVID or the coronavirus, it was a suburban uh, issue. It was something that a jet setter would experience. It was never mentioned or wildly thought to not going to have any impact whatsoever on black and brown people. And we know that that is absolutely not the case. And so I think the reason why I brought the story up is because I really, really want, I want for our EB teams, marketing teams, recruitment marketing teams, comms teams, PR teams, I want for those entities inside of our organizations to explore how and what they cover, what they share, talk about internally and externally. This is really a challenge for our listener, Julie. I want listeners to really go out and ask, you know, those people in those departments, how are we covering various aspects of our business? Not just COVID-19, but how are we telling stories that will attract, that will be of importance, that will be of uh, use, that will be actionable, that will be inviting. How are we telling stories um, to different audiences in and around our community uh, that benefit from our product and services? And of course, that we would love to have working as a part of our employee base. Make sense? 
Yeah. I mean, you, you can't tell the story and you can't sell the story if you aren't a part of the story, right? If a white person cannot sell as effectively, cannot report as effectively about issues that affect the, the black community, the Hispanic community, and just as men can't, you know, with, with gender issues. And so, yeah, I mean, it absolutely makes sense and it's absolutely critical. And I, we're having very similar conversations on the, the political side. You see quite a, f- a few female journalists kind of in the politics circle, but you don't see um, a lot of, of people of color really pulled into um, talking about our elections and how that those decisions and, and, and how you vote really impact um, your community. And, it, and it's not done from a, I don't, I don't think it's done from a purposefully negative place. I think that just like when I saw President Obama last year, um, him talking about there just not being that mentorship, that that series of young journalists moving up the ranks that are people of color. And but the people who are in power now need to start making those um, opportunities available and making sure that that people of color who are going to be able to tell such different stories and with such a different point of view, lens of color is, is going to actually um, make their product that much better. Yeah, no. And I would just take one issue, one piece of pause. I do believe that yeah. white people can tell our stories. I really? believe, Yeah, I do. I believe that there are certainly, you know, there are just people that are, are good at their craft and, you know, whether they have that proximity, that experience, whether they learned it over time, learn it, if you will. So, yeah, I do believe that there okay. are people that can tell our story or they can tell stories that are not so much so uh, theirs, uh, if you will. But but what I what I also agree with and I think what, what you are what you are saying is that. We still need people from a said community to be able to tell that story. I can talk about people with disabilities or I can talk about, uh, you know, folks that are veterans. But even though I'm a veteran, I'm a 30 year removed veteran, if you will. I think it's 30 year. You know, I'd rather hear from a veteran who is now more recent. And so, yeah, but I agree with you 1000 percent. I just feel like there's certainly something that will be different if, in fact, we think about who and how those stories are being told. Uh, there was a quote that came out of one of the articles that I read in preparing for this segment, and it talked about journalists and quote, it says journalists of color bring different life experiences, perspectives, skills and source networks to newsrooms. That wealth of talent and knowledge surely will help improve and broaden news coverage. And that was said by Doug Haddix. He's the executive director of IRE. And that's exactly what we're getting at. It's just not a, it's not so much of a zero sum game. It's not I want to push you out. It's I want more people to be included. I want to see more folks uh, represented in the the the, you know, the process of telling the stories, which goes to my challenge. I said that I was going to uh, take up an assignment. Uh, and so for the next 90 days, Julie, one of the things that I'm going to do is edit some of my social media intake. I often say this. Uh, but I'm actually going to really, really do it today. And and I'm putting it out so people can hold me accountable. So I'm starting with uh, seven under the radar hijabi bloggers. I, I've gone on Instagram. Uh, I've followed all seven of these women. 
uh, on Instagram. I'm going to see if they are also on Twitter. I'm going to get out and follow some more individuals from the Muslim space that talk about employment, that talk about politics. Uh, I want to see if maybe if I can find uh, someone from the Muslim community that talks about social impact and activism. I'm going to alter just a bit my social media diet. I want to take in some new and different information for the next 90 days. And I'm going to report back to you and I'm going to put a note on my calendar. And when we record a session in three months, uh, I'll share with you, you know, some of what I've learned. Uh, I can't promise that in 90 days, I'm going to still be following these seven young women uh, because they mostly talk about fashion and makeup and you know, mm-hmm. things like that. And I'm not really into eyeliner. You know, it's just, it ain't oh, my thing. come on, you look uh, great. You look great. You know, <laughs> you know uh, $8,000 hijabs, uh, it's not my thing. You know, it's, and, and I'm not saying all of them cost 8000 but that was re- revealing for me. Like, wow, I've always saw it as a beautiful uh, piece of clothing. I, I've always loved that adornment, uh, even from a child. Mm-hmm. Um but the industry is changing so incredibly fast. And, and so people are recognizing it. So that that's my challenge over the next 90 days. I, I liked, I, I, I like the word that you said, hijabi women. Um, and, and at first it kind of jumped out at me and took me back or back just for a second. Um, but it's it's because the women choose to wear the hijab. It's right. not because it's being forced upon them. And so that's not a term that I've I've heard used a lot, but I think that it is empowering to to those young women and to those women who have a lot of times they have had a label put on them as subordinate and submissive and yeah. out of their own control. And, and I think that you know, just from my quick non-hijabi perspective, um, that seems like a nice way for them to take back their label, just Absolutely. like we're talking about all the time and to really own who they are and their choices. So uh, that's that's really cool. And I hope that you'll share on our Crazy in the King Facebook page and on our Twitter, uh, those young ladies that you're choosing to follow. Absolutely. Absolutely. So no resources from me. You have a name drop? Um, I do. Um, Emily Ladau, who is um, who she was actually on the panel with me at the United Nations. Uh, she's an incredible, passionate disability advocate, and she was featured on PBS NewsHour uh, last week talking about the impact of COVID-19 on disability employment, disability access to health care and, and a lot of other services. And she is such an incredible speaker and such an incredible advocate for our community and she's very much no bullshit and it's not about philanthropy it's about what's best for for the world and and best for changing um us into a society that is inclusive so congrats for being on pbs news hour let emily and and keep up the amazing work good stuff my uh name drop is christopher kurtz do good be kind So Christopher was moved as well a couple of weeks ago uh, about the Ahmaud Arbery case. And he reached out to me and said, Torn, you know, I don't know if you're going to be comfortable, but I'd love to chat with you about, you know, just being a black father. And, you know, what is it that you have to tell your kings? Uh, Almost everyone knows that I call my sons my kings. Um, 
you know, and so he said, you know, I just don't know if you'd be comfortable, but I'd really love for you to come on IG live with me. And we did, we, we rocked for an hour. Uh, we actually went over time and got disconnected by the platform, but you know, we had a really great conversation, just real open and organic, uh, just talking about being black, uh, you know, the complications of such even in 2020. And I just appreciate Chris uh, for extending an invitation and being concerned enough to even want to do that. For our listeners, you can find him on uh, Twitter at do good underscore be kind. Again, do good underscore be kind. Awesome. So we've got some great guests coming up in the next few weeks and uh, we'll just continue to, to bring you guys all we can during the quarantine Period. Absolutely. And if you guys got stories and things that you think about or you think that would be great discussions or if you just want to hit Julie and I up, you can find Julie on Twitter at J. I'm sorry, uh, Julie Sowash, J-U-L-I-E Sowash, um, all one word. And you can find me on Twitter at Torin Ellis, one R, at Torin Ellis across all of social media. I don't think either one of us are traveling. We're going to put our noses down. We're going to continue to do good work for the organizations we represent. Hey, Julie, shout out your your company. Make sure folks know who you work for. Disability Solutions. You can find us at disabilitytalent.org. That's a great ending commercial. You can find me on <laughs> Sirius XM channel 126. 1 p.m. on Sundays. I close reminding each and every one of you to be a better human. We do want you to have a fantastic week. We don't want your spirit to be down. Check your mental health. Check on the people around you. Check on your colleagues that you haven't seen on the last webinar or Zoom meeting. But we want you to have a fantastic week. For now, Julie and I are ghosts. See ya. Welcome, change agents, to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary, yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you, and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts.